Mondi, M-A-U-N-D-Y, is from the Latin word mandatum, which means commandment. And it's a quote from Jesus at the, at the Last Supper with the disciples. It says, a new command I give to you, love one another. So the church started calling that mandatum day, commandment day, celebrating the command that Jesus gave. And then in English, because we don't want to say mandatum, we just call it Mondi. So it's Mondi Thursday. Or for most of us, Maundy Thursday or Monday Thursday, if you can't have the two words indifferently. Maundy Thursday is a celebration of the Last Supper. Jesus meal with his disciples, his last time to talk to them, the night before he goes to the cross the next day. And what I wanted to do tonight, we have a Good Friday service tomorrow night, which will feel like a traditional Good Friday service. It'll feel like a funeral, hopefully, tomorrow. Um, because at the end of the... At the end of that service, Christ is dead. And he's in the tomb for three days, and then we celebrate on Easter. But this service should feel very different. And I wanted to rearrange the room differently because I want us to, even with our bodies, feel the difference between the dinner that Jesus had with his disciples and his death on the cross. Thursday night should feel like a family dinner. It should feel like a celebration feast. Because on Thursday night, on a night just like this, in the spring, in the evening, right before the sunset, every Jewish family for a thousand years sat down and had the Passover feast together. And Jesus and his disciples were doing this exact same thing. In fact, in the Gospels, everybody reports that as they prepared for the Passover, Jesus made a special emphasis with his disciples. We need to share this meal together. And so he prepares an upper room and he brings his disciples and they gather around the table and they had been doing the same service of Passover. It's called a Seder for their whole lives. If you grew up in a Jewish home, by the time you were a teenager, you could repeat verbatim what you did on the Passover because you memorized it during the year. You said it the same way every Passover evening. You had questions and responses. You had hymns that you sang. It was the high point of the Jewish calendar, Passover dinner with your family. Now, in the Passover celebration, that starts with a blessing. And the person who's doing the Passover Seder, either the father or if you have a rabbi or somebody who's walking through the Seder, they start with a blessing. And what they want to do is transport you back to life in Egypt. What was it like to be an Israelite in Egypt? Even down to the food they ate at Passover. You have a Passover lamb, you have unleavened bread, and you have bitter herbs. Every Passover meal, no matter what sides you make, no matter what traditions your family has, those three ingredients are there. And in the Passover Seder, they went through each of those to talk about what it was like living in Egypt. And so if you closed your eyes at an ancient Jewish Seder, you would remember, even down to the smells, what it was like to be a slave in Egypt. And the Bible actually records what you're supposed to say at the beginning of a Passover meal. In Deuteronomy 26, it says, You shall make a response to the Lord your God, and you should say this. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, but he became a mighty nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us, and they laid on us hard labor. And we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt. 
With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders, he brought us into a place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I'm bringing the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given to us. That's how every Passover started. Because the story of Passover actually begins before the Exodus. It begins with a wandering Aramean named Abraham. And Abraham is raised in the city of Ur, and he's an idol worshiper. And so his family has little graven images that they worship. And one day, God calls out to Abraham, and he says, I want you to leave your home, leave your town, leave your old gods, leave your old life, and go where I'm going to tell you to go. Now, Abraham didn't know where he was going when God called him. The only call was, you can continue to do what you're doing here, or you can worship the one true living God. And you know the story. Abraham leaves his home, leaves his father's household, leaves his idols behind, and he begins to follow God. And as he does, God speaks to him and he makes a promise to him. In Genesis chapter 12, he says, Abraham, I'm about to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing to the entire world. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That was God's part of the deal. Abraham's part of the deal was to believe God's promises and walk in them. That God would be his God and he would be God's people. That he would worship no other gods. He would trust God. And what Paul says in Romans, he would believe God. And that would be credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham follows God and God promises to give him a son. But time goes on and Abraham's not getting any younger. He's 99 years old. And so he's thinking probably the ship has sailed on having a son. But God comes to him and he says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your great reward. And God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in the ancient world, what they did when they made a covenant is you didn't make a covenant. In fact, if you read the Hebrew Bible, it it never says you make a covenant. It says you cut a covenant. Because there can't be a covenant if there's not shedding of blood. There always has to be blood that seals the covenant. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So go get a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and cut them in half and lay them in a trench in the ground. We know from even outside the Bible that this is how kings used to make treaties with each other. They would lay these sacrificial animals in a ditch and the blood would run down into the trough. And then the kings would walk through the middle of the blood. And the blood would splatter on their clothes and on their legs and they would be marked. And what they were saying in that covenant is, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, you can do this to me. My life is forfeit if I don't keep this covenant. So Abraham prepares the sacrifices and the blood runs down. And when the moment comes to make the covenant, a deep and dreadful darkness comes over the face of the earth. And Abraham is terrified and God takes a torch and a pot and walks through the blood. In Genesis chapter 15, God says, your offspring will be sojourners in a land not their own. They will be servants there for 400 years, and they will be afflicted. But I will bring judgment on their captors, and I will deliver them. And as God walked through the blood on the ground, he was saying, and so be it for me 
if I don't hold up my end of this covenant. Well, sure enough, Abraham's family goes down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. Joseph is down there. The whole family comes down and they live in Egypt for hundreds of years. But the problem is they got so numerous and so powerful that the Egyptians realized they needed to subject them and they had free labor with them as long as they could keep them in chains. So they made them their slaves. They put them to work. They made them make bricks without straw. They abused them. And the people cried out over and over and over again for God to deliver them. And it says in the book of Exodus that God heard their cries. And at the right time, he sent Moses to go and bring his people out of Egypt. Now, you probably know how the story goes. Moses goes in. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God reassures Moses and he says, go back and I will do great signs and wonders until Pharaoh lets your people go. So in comes the water turned to blood and the frogs and the gnats and the boils and the hailstones. And finally, things have gotten so miserable. Moses thinks there's nothing else that God could do. They're not going to let the people go. And God says, there's one plague yet to come. God is going to descend and the angel of death is going to take the firstborn from every household. And there will be a whale in Egypt like there has never been before and never will be after. But he said to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 12, Moses calls all the elders of Israel together. He says, go and take lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost. Put it all over the front of your door. And now you will go door to door in the morning to check that they're there. And the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. But when he sees blood on the mantle and the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and the destroyer will not enter your house. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that God is going to give you, As he promised, you shall keep this service as a remembrance. And when your children say to you, what does this service mean? What does Passover mean? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. He passed over the houses of the people in Egypt, and he struck the Egyptians, and he spared us. And the people bowed their head, and they worshiped. And God made good on his part of the promise. The Egyptians, like all sinful people, like every one of us in this room, had broken God's law. They had rebelled against him. They had worshipped foreign gods. And their part of the covenant with humanity was broken. And in fact, the Israelites had also broken the covenant. Every person who's ever lived has broken this covenant. And so the Israelites, their lives were forfeit as well. But God gave them a way to pass over them. And it was through the death of an animal on their behalf. So the sacrificial system is a way that God gave to his people to avert paying the penalty for sin. So when the Israelites come out of Egypt, their lives are still forfeit. They, they have not lived up to their part of the covenant. But God gave them the system. Every year they would sacrifice goats and sheep so that they would pay the interest on the debt. But the debt is never really gone. Their lives are forfeit. And so they had a day every year called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, they would make an offering for the, for the whole nation of Israel to say, Lord, we know we haven't lived up to your promises, but take this in place of our lives and stay your wrath. 
Well, this happens for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Sheep and goats and cows and birds are taking the place of people whose lives are forfeit to God. And the Jews had a whole system. And when we come to the New Testament, they're still doing this. They have the temple, they have the priests, they have the Levitical law, and they are offering these things on their own behalf to God. And then all of a sudden one day, a rabbi shows up. And the most famous preacher in the world at that time, John the Baptist, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus heals people, he does miracles, he multiplies fish and loaves, but his entire purpose for living, he says, is so that he can die and rise from the dead. Well, during the Passover, on the, sun, on the Sunday, which is the first day of the week before the Passover ceremony, is called Lamb Selection Day. And on Lamb Selection Day, they would go out to the fields that are between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Because between Bethlehem, which is just a few miles away from Jerusalem, that's where they keep the Passover lambs. And the shepherds who are in those fields tend special bred lambs for the Passover. They've got to be perfect. They've got to be without blemish. They have to be exactly the right age. They have to look right. They have to be inspected by the priests. They have to be perfect lambs. Well, on the Sunday before Passover, Jesus, born of Bethlehem, rides into town in what we call, what we celebrated this Sunday, the triumphal entry. It's Lamb Selection Sunday. And God has chosen his lamb. He rides into town, he goes to the temple, he cleanses the temple, and he presents himself to God as a perfect sacrifice. And that week he teaches his disciples, he teaches the crowds, he does miracles, he gives the greatest commandment. A lot of the things we think about in Jesus' ministry in this last week of his life, because it's the last time he has with these people before he goes to the cross. And on Thursday night, which is the beginning of the Passover, at at sundown is the beginning of the Passover, Jesus gathers his disciples for a Passover meal. Now he knows, and his disciples have been told what's going to happen the next day. Jesus is going to be tried that night in the kangaroo court. He's going to be innocent, but he's going to be put to death by people who John says he came to his own, but his own didn't recognize him. And the people that chanted Hosanna on Sunday were chanting crucify him on Friday. So Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor, hands Jesus over to be crucified. And in that moment, as he's hanging on the cross at noon, a deep and dreadful darkness descends on the earth. And as the blood of Jesus is being spilt on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. And what did he mean when he said, it is finished? He didn't just mean that his life was over. He didn't just mean his agony had come to an end. He didn't just mean that his crucifixion was coming to a close. He meant the debt that has been building for thousands of years from the covenant with Abraham is finally finished. God upheld his part of the deal and his son upheld ours. So suspended between heaven and earth on a cross is the perfect Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, who is our representative, he takes all of our debt on himself and finally pays for what we could never pay. It's the last sacrifice that ever has to be made. The covenant with Abraham has been settled. God said, you can do this to me if I break my part of the covenant, and the same for you. And humanity would have had to do that, except 
Jesus came and did that in our place. It was God's Passover lamb who was slain for us. So Jesus is telling this story to his disciples at the Last Supper. And he's walking through this ceremony. And in the Passover ceremony, there are four cups of wine. And the rabbis actually talk about this. You can drink more than four cups of wine if you want, but it has to be between the third and fourth cup. Because between the third and fourth cup is when the singing happens. And you sing these psalms and you celebrate what God has done and you remember what it was like to be a slave in Egypt and what it means to be free, to celebrate the land of milk and honey. And when you get to the fourth cup, you get to the end of the ceremony and the way you end it is with a blessing. So the person that's doing the Passover will take the fourth cup and they will bless it and they will say the prayer that you've said every year of your life and then it's over. But Jesus gets to the end of the supper and he takes the fourth cup And he does something different. He doesn't follow the Passover ceremony. He doesn't do what they expected him to do. He says something different. He takes the fourth cup after he takes the bread and he thanks God and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. And then he takes the fourth cup and he says, and this is a new covenant in my blood. The old covenant is about to pass away. And what Jesus is doing is making a new covenant with his people. Now, this would have sounded very odd to the disciples. Because what Jesus says when he takes this fourth cup, and the fact that he's holding that cup there as a sign of a new covenant, would have sounded almost exactly like a Jewish wedding ceremony. So what happened in in those days is when a man and a woman decided they wanted to get married, and... The, the man would go to his father and they would agree, this is somebody that we want to marry. They would go to the woman's family. And so the four of them, the two dads and the man and the woman, would argue over a price. And once they set the price, here's what would happen. The father of the son would pour a glass of wine and give it to his son. And his son would hold it out to the woman and he would say, I love you. I'm giving my life for you. Will you marry me? Now, the woman had a choice at this moment. She could either take the cup and drink from it, or she could let the cup pass. And when she drank from the cup, what she was saying is, I love you, and I will give my life to you. And after that, the son and the father would go away. They were betrothed, and he would prepare a place for them. He would build a room, usually on his family's house. And then when they were done, he would come and get the woman, and they would have a wedding ceremony. So Jesus is with his disciples this night, and he offers them a cup. And it's not the Passover cup. It's a new covenant wedding cup. And do you know what he does? He holds it out. He says, this is a new covenant of my blood. And if you drink this, you will do it in remembrance of me. You'll proclaim my death until I come again. Right before that, Jesus had explained to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you can be forever. And I will return to come and get you when the time is right. And he offers them a cup and he says, my life for yours. Will you drink the cup or will you let the cup pass? The new covenant is a life for a life. His perfect life for our sinful life. His righteous life, his life with God, life in his father's house for our life. And so when we take communion and when the disciples on that night took communion together, they were doing two things. The first thing is they were recognizing that Jesus was asking for their life. 
They were, they were entering into a new covenant sealed with Jesus' blood, like a wedding ceremony where you give yourself completely to someone. And they had the choice either to drink that cup or to let that cup pass. Now, they were also probably thinking of something else. If Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to take you to be in my Father's house, do you remember what it says happens at the end of all things when Jesus comes back? There's a giant wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reason we take communion is because if you take communion and if you drink from this cup, you are betrothing yourself to Christ. And it's a preview of the moment when our eyes close here or Jesus returns here and we end up at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So communion is often portrayed as a very solemn event. We are thinking about our sins. We are confessing. But I want to encourage you to think about communion as a joyful event as well. That night when Jesus and his disciples took communion, when you go to a Passover Seder, it is a joyful family feast. And what we're looking forward to when we take communion is not just that betrothal period now where we're following him and he's going to return for us. It's the thing that we look forward to is the joyful wedding supper we will have in eternity with God forever. So it's this mingling of sorrow and joy in this single cup, in this single loaf of bread. So the question for us is, and the reason we practice this as a recurring thing is, we continue to say, your life for mine. I will enter this covenant with you. I will be faithful to you. I will love you with my whole heart. And I will look forward to the day that you come again and we eat and drink together forever in eternity. So tonight we're going to take communion a little differently than we usually do. You have a loaf on your table, and what we're going to do is I put some scriptures on your table. And the point is just to talk while you're taking communion together. Whether you're reading a scripture and you tear off a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and you take communion that way. Whether you do that, whether you pray together, whether you point out something that you saw for the first time or what you learned, or whether you have something that's been on your heart headed into the Easter weekend. The point of communion is to commune together and with God and to celebrate what's to come. So take a few minutes at your table, maybe read a little bit, tear off some bread, dip it, eat it, read a little bit more, tear off, eat it. This is not like usual communion where you won't get one micro loaf. This is like a meal that we would share together. And after a few minutes, I'll come up and pray to close us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this visible, intangible ritual, this symbol, this act that we get to do that proclaims over and over again, we love you. We remember that you gave yourself for us. We're waiting for you to come back and we're living now betrothed to you. Father, we know that eternal life doesn't just start when we die, it starts now. We've been reunited with you. There's a way that's been opened at the cross and we are your children, you are our God. The promises to Abraham are true about us. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that this week especially, we just get a a really potent reminder of how much it cost you to be reunited with us. And so, Father, we love you. We praise you. We celebrate. We look forward to the moment where we get to dine with you forever. We get to feast in the house of Zion forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.